We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. When you're younger, you tend not to stop and smell the roses. But when you're older, you slow down because you have to, and you end up hanging out with your cat standing in the garden smelling the roses suddenly. <laughs> and it's a different world, and its meaning starts to become more important than pure happiness at that point. Well, I think what you're talking about in many ways is the small joys and pleasures of life. And that also comes, as you said, very clearly is because you have to. See, we usually get to things in two ways. We evolve, we think about, and we come to our own conclusions and make changes. But oftentimes, if not more often than not, the realization that we no longer can do something or we become more vulnerable, which naturally happens with age, physically and in many other ways. There's a realization. So it's no longer about I want, I will, because want and will do not coincide with the body's inability to carry out what you're thinking or wanting to do. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 187, pH Factor, Getting Older, Rediscovering the Self. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Good morning, Harry. How are you? Good morning, Peter. I'm better considering I was pretty bad about four days ago. I had caught a flu of some kind and I was really under the weather, but I've crawled out from under. I've got lots of energy today and Still some uh, residual congestion and that sort of thing, but we're finding our way out into the sunshine, thanks to say. Mm. Excuse me, excuse my gulp there. I'm just having a wonderful cup of coffee. Drink? It's so good. Sorry, what are you drinking? I'm drinking some Brazilian espresso Hockley Valley coffee, and it's uh, just delicious. I had that roast. It's fantastic. I enjoy it too. You used to have it here in the studio, right? That's right. We toast with our coffees in the studio. <laughs> and I'll be sending you something over Scotia so you can continue to enjoy it. Oh, I can't wait for that. That's great. Thanks. I asked you how things were in Nova Scotia, and specifically, I've been asked by people here who knew you here in Orangeville and the Calvin area how things were out there. Maybe you could just give us a brief rundown of what you experienced. Well, thankfully, as the hurricane moved up the coast, hitting more Halifax, Cape Britain, Prince Edward Island way, we live in the more interior the Bay of Fundy side of Nova Scotia, and that got more the edge of the hurricane. So our winds were more like gusting to 85, 90 top end, which is a lot, but it's not like 120, 150 that some of those places and people were getting. And so our damage was minimal compared to thousands and thousands of people here in Nova Scotia. Uh, there was at last count something like 400,000 people lost power, and some are still out. We didn't lose power, thankfully, so we were quite fortunate to be where we are for our first encounter with a hurricane. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be more. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that was our welcome to Nova Scotia. And prior to that actually happening, you also had a situation there where you were able to test your tired bones and muscles on getting those horses moved to a different location yeah. in the midst of all this. Yeah, we had a neighbor who came by and said, uh, you know, I see your barn is not complete. Would you like to borrow our barn? You could bring your horses over and keep them safe for a few days and then bring them back. And we thought, yeah, let's do that. But then, of course, the challenge was to walk our two kind of temperamental thoroughbreds 
about a half kilometer up the road to a foreign barn with a foreign landscape and have them be calm enough to make that trip and be safe, etc. But we did it. Both my wife and I were feeling under the weather already at that point, but we managed to walk them up to the barn, keep them safe for a couple of days, and then walk them back on the Sunday. So uh, yeah, it all worked out quite well. But of course, we know the stress and strain of it made me sick and my wife caught it as well. Yeah, so briefly, you're just over 70. Your wife is in her early 60s. Yep. Did age play a part this past week? Were you feeling it a little bit more? Well, I think probably my response to the flu or whatever it was, it could have been COVID for all I know, but um, my response to the symptoms were that I got really slammed, knocked on my ass, so to speak, on the first day or two. But then my body began to recover more quickly than I had imagined. They say that people over 60s, 70s, 80s are the most vulnerable to these things. But I hadn't been sick for more than three years, Peter. I hadn't had a cold or a sniff. So I'm actually amazed at how well I did. I managed to get through it and maybe my immune system is better than I thought. So I'm happy about that. Well, country living, regular activity, you're more physical now, you've mentioned, than you've ever been before. So I believe all those things help. And, you know, that's part of the aging process is recognizing things that we can do to either slow it down or experience the whole aging process a little better, which has to do with self-care, diet, reasonable exercise. You don't have to be running marathons, but just a constant mobility factor, which helps us keep all our joints lubricated and so on. So I wanted to mention briefly before we get into this podcast that we had a fair bit of feedback, some very interesting and I would say even inspiring comments on our last podcast, which was part one of a two-part series on getting older. One said they were going to actually try and get other family members to listen to that podcast in hopes of opening up a conversation on death and dying which had been a difficult subject to broach in the family. And 91-year-old Dolores Hind from Ontario, Canada, had this to say. The podcasts were very interesting for me because I have reached the senior, senior stage, not the junior stage. And I have been thinking more and more about death. I found the podcast was very helpful because it talked about death. Yes, the maid thing. I don't want that. However, it made me realize that I had better make more plans than I have already. I have talked to my children, but very, very casually. And I suddenly realized that I should put things down with pen and paper. And I have not done it yet, but I'm going to do it within the next week. And I'm going to put down everything that I think and want about when I die. I found it very interesting because it was talked about in a very normal manner, nothing frightening, just the two fellows were chatting back and forth about dying. And um, we all have to come to terms with it. 
and I had not. I haven't wanted to sort of seize the topic because I've been, yes, a bit frightened. And I'm not now. I'm not. I mean that. I, I can't believe it, but I am quite able to accept that. I have accepted most things that have happened to me, but I was having quite a time with that. But when I heard the podcast, it really, really helped me. And that was very important. And another, which we received permission to read on this podcast. So Jay Willoughby from the Seattle area in Washington State in the U.S. wrote, and here it is verbatim. I was born the last two weeks of December 64, the very last of the boomers. I'm amazed by the friends close in age and how they talk. I often hear things like, I am too old. I can't think like that anymore. It's not worth the risk at my age and so on. Then he goes on to say, a good friend of mine, Jeff, was at my house helping me with a truck project on September 1st. He was 76, the busiest retired guy I have ever met, and just a downright great guy. He and I talked quite a bit about people's attitude and what they repeat to themselves and others that does usually more harm than good. We talked about a number of things, but the one thing that stands out is him saying, you got to have goals and stay excited and not listen to the naysayers. The next day, he went to check something off his bucket list to ride his bicycle down Hurricane Ridge Road. It's a pretty steep road, and one can get some real speed on it. He had a medical event and crashed, crushing the ribs into his lung and heart. As he said the night before, Jay, you never know when your card will get pulled, so you got to live life to the fullest. I think that sums it up, don't you, Harry? That's an incredible story, actually, because Jeff, the 76-year-old, he could have said to himself, nah, at my age, it's a bit too dangerous to make that drive down Hurricane Ridge on a bicycle, so I'll just stay home and watch the football game or something. He might have lived another 20 years if he had kept that attitude going to into his 90s, but because of his attitude of got to live life to the fullest, it ended up killing him maybe earlier than it might have been. So the question really here is about what does your life mean? Where is the meaning in life for you if you're just sitting around on your ass for 20 years watching football games until you die? So I think there's a conversation about meaning and relevance to be had around getting older and what you choose to do and what you choose not to do. Sure, and whether or not you have some purpose, if you have a reason for getting up in the morning, which I've always thought was very important. I know that certainly has been beneficial for me to have purpose because, as I said, it keeps your wheels turning, it keeps your body moving, and it incentivizes you to produce on some level. And it doesn't mean you run yourself into the ground or you become overly preoccupied. The whole idea is just to be in the moment, to enjoy life, and to try to approach it optimistically, all these things from a logic perspective can only benefit you in terms of your activity level, your mindset, even to push off those demons that often creep into our minds in life in general, let alone when we're aging, as our body begins to slow down or we begin to 
take longer periods of time to recover from injury and so on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think you're right about the question. The question is how. So whether you choose to have a sedentary lifestyle and kick back and not take any risks or whatever or not, is really a personal choice. It is. It is. And sometimes if there's a spouse or a partner in the equation, they can temper your decisions one way or the other. So a good spouse might say, Jeff, that ride down Hurricane Ridge, I think is too dangerous. Please don't do that now. We'll think of something else you can do on your bucket list, but that one looks pretty dangerous to me. And I love you so much, I don't want to lose you. And that might be just enough to sway old Jeff to just hold off on that one for a few years and do something else which is not quite as risky, but can be every bit as satisfying. Well, totally. Circumstances definitely uh, factor in not only your spouse, but your own headspace. Your headspace changes as you grow older. Yep. And you've talked to me about stories where you've met elderly people who've lost their spouses 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they're a bit at large and not sure what to do with their life. So these things all play a part, I think, in the decisions we make as we get older of what is important to us. I think we can agree that people that have a mission or that have a purpose generally do better in life, assuming, of course, that that purpose is also moderated, that it's not excessive. Being overdriven can also work against you, much like decisions to take on something that's a little bit more fatalistic. However, people that have a reason for being tend to do better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing, too, Peter. Having a reason for being that has sort of positive vibrations attached to it, giving to the world, giving back to the world, leaving a positive legacy behind, that's one element of that. The other element, though, which is more on the darker side, is I have a story of a friend of mine who, as he got into his late 50s and early 60s, his libido started to fail him. and he had been so active sexually for so many years and felt that he could carry on into his older years that he started to get depressed to the point where, very sadly, he committed suicide in his late 50s, something like that. That side of him died off and he had invested so much in that side of him that he couldn't see himself carrying on in the world. So there's all kinds of these strange stories of people who feel that they're losing something as they get older rather than gaining something. And that's a sad story. Well, you just pulled a surprise on me because I wasn't expecting you to bring this up in this conversation. But this is really interesting to me because I can actually use this particular case that you just brought up to myself specifically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because one of the things that have been at least for me, a benefit, the hormones or the libido factor that you just mentioned or alluded to have moderated or have become more manageable. And it's made my life much better. I'm much more capable of living in the present. I'm much more capable of being in situations where my mind is not being, um, well, for lack of a better phrase, unidirectional. And I find it's been a benefit. Now, I hear other men complain or be depressed by either a loss of libido or a loss of physical functionality. Now, fortunately, I've lost neither, but there has been a moderation, which has been a benefit for me. It's given me much more clarity. 
I'm a much better listener. <laughs> I know this may sound <laughs> comical at times, but it's been beneficial. And I think a lot of it's also the way you think of it, whether you see certain changes as benefits or losses. If you focus on the loss side, no matter what it is, it tends to bring you down and makes you lose that spark, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's creative. So again, it's very specific to individuals and their experiences. Yeah. And from my side, I would like to talk a little bit about the fact that even though the body grows older, the mind still can feel quite youthful. And one, I find myself, and I think others, if they admitted that to themselves, would say this too. There's a fantasy life to be had as you get older as well. You can't do certain things, but you can fantasize about doing them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, yes. it's almost as much uh, enjoyment in the fantasy than it is in the reality, probably more, in fact. I'm 71, but it doesn't stop me from recognizing a pretty woman who walks down the street and going, there's a beautiful woman. Even though there's no chance in hell I'm going to spend any time with that woman or hang out with her or have sex with her or anything like that. But as someone once said, I may be married, but I'm not dead <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yes, but what you've also just said is you've introduced a level of moderation and respect. And that's what I was talking about. Because rationally, even as a young man, I had a great deal of respect for women, still do. But there was this constant battle between the hormones, the libido, and the way you wanted to treat the individual. And as you just said, the benefit you have now is that you can appreciate fully the same things without the aggression, without the preoccupation. Right, right. Uh, even if it's done kindly, it's still a distraction. Because if I'm focused on that, I may not hear everything that this woman is saying. I may not get the full value of the conversation and appreciate finer things because the physicality is distracting me from total focus. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's a point where as one grows older, we run into a kind of self-sufficiency situation, if I can put it that way. We talked with Andrew Welch, author of The Value Crisis and Our Second Chance, and he talks about sufficiency and how in nature there is sufficiency. When nature reaches the sufficient point, it doesn't keep growing or keep grabbing or keep eating. But humans don't have this uh, sense of sufficiency too often. We don't have that sense, and so growth is unchecked. But in older age, one through our own kind of wisdom and perspective can go, that's enough. I don't need more than that. I don't need more food on my plate. I don't need more sex on my plate. I don't need these. I've had enough as the years have rolled by. Yes, that word enough. I love that word because to me, it's one of the things that ails our society in general, this thinking of ever expanding growth and more is better when sometimes enough is more than adequate. Right. And the whole concept of enough is also in line with nature's way, with the universal approach, universal law, where things are constantly adjusting. They reach a point and then they adjust in the reverse direction in order to regain balance. Hmm. Say more. Say more about that. 
For example, if you examine the way we function on an economic level, so our lives are largely based on what's happening economically. As you can see, it makes the news every single day, many times a day. We're constantly preoccupied with how much money we have, how much we're going to make, how much we're going to lose, inflationary things, and so on, because it is based on the premise that the only positive thing is upward movement. So you need to make more money. Why? Because you have to keep up with inflationary trends. Why? Because we have interest rates. Why? And so on and so on and so on. But essentially, if you reach a point of self-sufficiency, as you mentioned, whereby this is enough food, this is enough recreation, and so on, then you're adjusting to something that focuses on quality and sufficiency rather than on growth and an unlimited climb, yep. which you really can't do when you're dealing with limited resources. We don't have unlimited resources. So to have an unlimited upward spiral trend is not logical. Yeah. But Peter, this is what I'm talking about is that when you're young, you tend to have that attitude of more is better. I can't get enough. I follow my desires, I follow the pleasure principle, and that sort of thing. When you get older, hopefully, you can get beyond that. And instead of just following the pleasure principle, which is a lovely thing in itself, but it's not everything, one begins to look for more deeper meaning in life. And I had this interesting uh, situation where I uploaded a photograph of a rock with a kind of a face carved in it to Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I commented how lovely it is to find rocks that have faces in them. And what ensued was a conversation about projection of meaning, how I can project a face into that rock, but it's really only a projection. There's no meaning in it. It's just a rock, mm-hmm. right? And the thing is, that's something we do as human beings is that we seek for meaning in the world around us. And the world around us is, in a sense, talking to us all the time. And all we have to do is kind of listen in and connect. And that's where meaning kind of lives for us. But when you're younger, you tend not to stop and smell the roses. But when you're older, you slow down because you have to. And you end up hanging out with your cat standing in the garden, smelling the roses suddenly. (laughs) And it's a different world. And its meaning starts to become more important than pure happiness at that point. Well, I think what you're talking about in many ways is the small joys and pleasures of life. And that also comes, as you said, very clearly is because you have to. See, we usually get to things in two ways. We evolve, we think about, and we come to our own conclusions and make changes. But oftentimes, if not more often than not, the realization that we no longer can do something or we become more vulnerable, which naturally happens with age, physically and in many other ways. There's a realization. So it's no longer about I want, I will, because want and will do not coincide with the body's inability to carry out what you're thinking or wanting to do. So there's a realization that acts as a normal moderator. How many times have you encountered, even with a parent, for example, or a family member, that you experienced as overly aggressive or domineering or whatever. And sometimes they go to their grave being that way. But oftentimes, if they're able to live past a certain age and continue, much of that softens. (laughs) And I believe it's the vulnerability factor which makes you think 
and makes you reflect, makes you appreciate because now you have to find other ways of getting from A to B. Well, not only that, but the real softener in the mix is death because we are at our age, as we grow older, moving towards that moment, that mysterious, miraculous moment Mm -hmm. that frames our life with birth at the other end. And Jay's story actually reminds me of that too, because people could say, oh, Jeff died too young. If he hadn't gone down that ridge road, he would have lived, who knows, for how many years. But the fact is that it wasn't important for Jeff. The idea of dying, clearly, was not the most important element. It was a bit more matter of fact. He said, you never know when your card will get pulled, so you got to live life to the fullest, which is a very different attitude to, oh my God, death is coming and I've got to protect myself against death at all costs and try to live 30 more years if I can. Very different attitude. Yes. So your attitude to death can soften and your approach to life can make you a bit more lighthearted, not so heavy and domineering and that sort of thing. So we need to ask ourselves, what are our attitudes towards death and dying as we get older and approach that big curtain that's uh, on the way to us? the process of actually aging, what are the things that tend to make people live either longer or more satisfying lives while they're living? Well, one major one, I think a lot of people would agree is not looking back so much as looking forward, Mm -hmm. which is very difficult to do because we have a lot more behind us than we have ahead of us. And sometimes we tend to focus on the negative in the past, the regrets that we have gathered together. Some people say, oh, I have had no regrets in my life. I don't believe those people, frankly. We've all done things that we regret having done. Mm -hmm. I, I know I have, and I can dwell on those, I suppose, and be caught up in them and go sour into my old age. But I could also do other things with those regrets. I could Maybe think deeply about them and try to find out, how could I have done something differently? Let's imagine I'm back in that situation and I chose a different path. Where would that lead me? Where would I be? So the fact is that we can, in a sense, change our own story, our own history. I know it sounds strange. (laughs) It sounds strange. No, not at all. In fact, I think what you just said, the immediate thought that I had as you were saying that, to me, the word regret, again, it's your attitude and your approach to the even definition of regret. You can turn it into self-flagellation or you can turn it into an opportunity to improve and move in a more positive direction. So regretting something means essentially that if you had the chance to do it over again, you might choose a different path or you might move in a different direction. Yeah. But you can take that situation and beat yourself up for the rest of your life because there's nothing you can do to have changed that and you can't deal with the outcome of it. Or you say, it's in the past. Perhaps I shouldn't have done that or I wish I hadn't done it. What can I do? I wouldn't even define them as repairable because repairable has an expected outcome. I'm talking more about just focusing, creating, being positive, giving back to the people that you care about and the people around you in general, so that it's not fixed to an outcome, but the outcome will occur as a natural progression of all these attributes. 
Though mm-hmm. so there is a way of changing the past. I think there are ways of changing those regretful moments because ultimately when we look at aging, when we look at growing, when we look at time, time itself is very much a construct as is our biography. If you think about it, think about it like this. If somebody asked you, tell me your biography, you would select out certain moments in your life where stuff happened, right? Important things, Mm -hmm. milestone moments, the birth of your granddaughter, your marriage, all these things you say, and that's my biography. But you could just as easily have chosen a bunch of nice breakfasts and little walks with your dog where nothing much happened and say, and that was my biography. We choose out the moments that we want to call ours and we say, that's our life. But our life is all of those things and it could be any of those things. So time itself is a very fluid piece of matter. So you can go back, for example, which I have gone back to my 13-year-old self, the self that lost his father at 13 Mm. and had a conversation from the 70-year-old to the 13-year-old in his bedroom and talked to him and tried to pass on some wisdom and some experience and perspective so that he could move through that tumultuous period and grow and not be stuck at the age of 13 because of that trauma. And it actually worked. It actually worked. That boy was able to grow through that trauma because that senior self of his was able to go back and chat with him about it. I'm not surprised that it worked because you also gave yourself permission and you gave yourself an opportunity to do something in a different way, take a different approach. And ultimately, what you're talking about is the stories we tell. We tell ourselves stories throughout our entire lives. Yeah. And when you think about it, you could make up any number of life stories based upon how you select out those moments. It kind of means that we have many lives. We are not a one life being. We have many lives that we have lived Mm -hmm. through our 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this planet. And so let's not limit ourselves. If somebody says, well, what was your life about? And you say, well, not much happened really. It was pretty uh, uneventful. Nothing to look at here. But if you look into it more deeply, you'd see all kinds of interesting moments that have been swept under the rug or forgotten or were thought to be irrelevant, but are actually beautiful moments that make up a particular life that is unique to you. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. I also think, and I'll be specific, using myself as an example, I've always had a very kind of mix of seriousness and love for childlike behavior or understanding the psyche of children. I've always loved children. I see a level of innocence, but I also see a lot of naturally occurring behavior, a level of enjoyment, excitement, wonder. These are all things that I believe, especially in the aging process, those who are able to maintain those things to the best of their ability, regardless of the physical limitations, It creates an environment in the mind that is hopeful, that is caring, that is connecting with your community, with people around you. And children are, for me, tremendous educators. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've worked with kids and they've taught me an awful lot about life and how to live it (laughs) joyfully and in the moment. Uh, I had this idea a number of years ago, Peter, where I thought there aren't really very many rooftop gardens 
in big cities with all these big flat buildings on the top. Why not build rooftop gardens all across the cities and then have the seniors in the apartment building or the office building go up and tend the gardens supported by children? So you could bring children or classrooms up to these rooftop gardens to work with seniors in growing vegetables and that sort of thing. And that way you'd get this interaction between the generations, which would be mutually beneficial. I think that we need to do more of that kind of thing and not isolate our seniors together in these enclaves that we see everywhere. What is it that in our senior years, and you and I can talk perhaps from our own personal experience, what is it that we find satisfying? I'll start this by saying that I feel a very strong desire to repair and improve things in some way, the world in some manner. So it's like a giving back of sorts. And for me, it's also how do I exit this world with grace? With courage, dignity, these are the things that I'm observing very closely now with people that I'm losing as to how the entire thing is working, what's happening within the family structure, what is leaving people with positive outcomes, negative outcomes, how can the suffering be decreased, how can the quality of life be increased, and and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's more and more as you grow older, and as I grow older as well, that each interaction is extremely important. No interaction should be taken for granted as we get older. Because look at the world around us. There's a war in the Ukraine. There's poverty in many parts of the world. The economy is suffering. People are suffering. And this is something that carries on constantly through our lifetimes and beyond, of course. And there's some aspects of it that we cannot do anything about. But what we can do is make each interaction, each connection with people that we meet meaningful and positive and generous of spirit and that sort of thing. And I think that's a way to give back, even if you have no children like myself. So there's no kind of legacy left to my children, but I can still leave a legacy and a residue of something in the interactions I have with the people around me and in the community, etc. People have contacted me, young people, and said, 20 years ago, I had this conversation with you and it stuck with me and thank you very much, that sort of thing. They weren't my children, but they were individuals that I had respect for and had a great conversation with. Well, absolutely. And for one who does have a child and a grandchild, I can tell you that whether you have children of your own or not, we all have different places in life and we all have different relationships and different choices. But I did want to say something that is a little bit more practical. As we're talking here, everything that we've been talking about, much easier to get to when you're feeling reasonably healthy and strong and have energy. Yep. And I think one of the challenges, well, this can apply even to people who are young because people who are young also sometimes have health issues where these things are compromised, where their energy level, their their mental state is such that it blocks them from being productive, from enjoying life to its fullest. And so I think that the practical aspects like your diet, your general level of health, how you look after your mental and physical self have a great deal to do with any and all of these things that we've talked about. Yeah, and for a lot of people, this is the time of life that people turn 
towards their church, their temple, their religion, their spiritual direction, especially because with death on the horizon, most religions have something to say about death and dying and how to approach it with grace and dignity and, in a sense, confidence. And for me, that's what I'm hoping that I can do, is I can move towards my passing with a very positive, confident feeling, unafraid, which who knows, in your last moments, fear is a very big thing. So mm -hmm. there could very well be great fear, but I'm trying to make my inner life in such a way that I can accept death with the same equanimity as I accepted the fact that I was born. <laughs> You're born, you die. These things are just other phenomena in life beyond everything else we've experienced. Hmm. The other thing too, is you just mentioned, you don't know. Well, the word you don't know, I would uh, simplify it this way and say, you know, focus on the things you can change, not on the things you can't. So if it's something that you don't know, you really won't be able to know until you get there. But in the meantime, there are many things you can do. As you said, dealing with your inner peace. I think forgiveness is a huge part of living, forgiving self and forgiving others in order to achieve peace. Because all these things we talked about are very, very difficult to achieve if you don't have a level of inner peace. Sure, absolutely true. One other thing I want to mention, because mm. I didn't mention it in the last podcast, but there are scientists who are actually working on ways of extending lifetimes, working with drugs like telomerase. It's an enzyme that repairs cells that decay. Talking about free radicals, there are molecules with an unpaired electron. That's a free radical. So trying to bring antioxidants into your body to fight the free radicals that tend to increase the aging process. And also looking at human growth hormone, people have spent a lot of money for injections of that. They believe it keeps the body in a youthful state. People talking about caloric restriction. They're saying that with animals, a diet that involves consuming 30% fewer calories has shown dramatically to increase the lifespan of animals in the laboratory. Mm. <laughs> so science itself has been focusing on aging for some time now. And who knows, within the next 50 years, we might see the human lifespan uh, increase to 150 years of age. Who knows? But in the meantime, don't lose yourself in that particular hope or count on that and stop living. Right. So you become obsessed with longevity and not the quality of your life on the things that you do know and control, or at least have some say in, in your daily living. Yeah. And there's something that I thought as we come to the end of this podcast, there's a saying, and this was uh, according to the Bold School newsletter of the Washington Post, where researchers have studied a population in Okinawa, Japan. As you know, there are places on earth where people are known to live extended lives, where they have the highest percentage of centenarians, yep. people over 100. And Okinawa is one of those places. And researchers attributed this longevity to the practice of, and Harry, you're better at pronouncing words, especially oriental words than I am, but I think the word is ikigai. Ikigai, that sounds right. The practice of ikigai. Ah, okay. I-K-I-G-A-Y. Yeah. And what that translates into is a sense of a life worth living, which includes some of the things we discussed, looking for joy in small things, being present, and creating a harmonious atmosphere. 
The other Japanese phrase that's appropriate here is wabi-sabi. Ah. And it's an aesthetic where people are encouraged to appreciate the imperfect in life, the aged in life. So a rusted barn wall, for example, is not something to be thought of as, oh, this is old and let's put something new up there. The Japanese aesthetic says, appreciate the age of that, appreciate what it's gone through to get there and the wisdom that's inherent in that aging. So wabi-sabi is another one to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. I wasn't uh, that familiar with that term until you said it and described it. So there's so many other things we could bring into this. I know there are things that come to my mind, the whole idea of the camps in the Second World War and how people responded to those atrocious conditions, how people gave up and how people struggled and, and were determined to survive, to tell the story. I believe there was a fellow named Frankel. Yep. His view of human nature as he experienced it in the camps. And he wrote, in the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. What kind of person do you want to be as you age? Can you make an inner decision that will guide you? Mm. I think that's a very good statement to end up with. All right. Ciao, Harry. Be good. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.